If you think about what a Facebook ad is, even if your goal is to get somebody's email to move them through the funnel, is that they've got to watch whatever it is on Facebook, they've got to click it, they've then got to engage what's there, then to give you their email, they're giving you about four steps. Whereas the tools out there that garner email addresses are generally one or two steps. And the less steps, the better, if that's what your goal is. So you can see on a B2B side, my bias, I'm leaning very heavily towards do the email acquisition because that is lifetime value, you know. You're listening to the B2B Growth Think Tank, the show that brings you the virtual hot seat where each week my expert guests and I help another business leader by masterminding actionable solutions to a specific challenge they're currently trying to solve in their business. So if you're looking for answers to a specific challenge that you're facing, that if you could solve in the next 90 days would have a huge impact on your growth, send it in to thinktank at thinklikeafish.co.uk and we'll see if we can feature you on the show. My name is Adam King, your host and the captain of the ship of growth consultancy Think Like a Fish. And if you're ready to rethink what's possible for your business and discover the growth strategies, advice and insight to turn this new vision into a reality, let's get started. Hey, Adam here, and thanks very much for tuning in. And as you are, I'm going to make the assumption that you are responsible for generating revenue for an established B2B professional service business, and you're looking to grow your revenue. So what I've got for you, you're going to absolutely love because I've recently released my new revenue multiplier calculator and bonus training where using this tool and following the training, you'll discover how to uncover the hidden revenue opportunities in your business and be able to systemize your growth using seven revenue multipliers that can double your business in 12 months or less. So if you want to go and grab your copy, go to thinklikeafish.co.uk forward slash calculator. Now on to today's episode. Hello and welcome to the B2B Growth Think Tank. Now, joining me today to talk business growth and to help out a fellow business leader on the virtual hot seat is someone who excels in making the complex simple. And I mean really complex here because he has decoded the brain mechanics, the science, the psychology, mathematics of decision making. Now, he spent four years of research and development to figure out how thinking and decision making works, from which he has designed something he calls the matrix, which allows his clients to understand their audience, how to segment, how to treat them, how to speak to them and what to show them every day, every week, month and season and adapt as both to the market and the consumer adapts. Now, as well as running the gap in the matrix, he's also published three books. He's a three times business founder. He sat on boards, written a paper for the prime minister, run events with Googles, won awards for leadership, sales and growth and received a commendation from the Home Secretary as well as being interviewed by Forbes. So this is a, obviously a pretty long list of accolades. So I am absolutely honoured to welcome my guest today, Martin, Martin Lucas, to the show. Martin, how are you doing? Oh, wonderful. Thanks for having me on, Adam. That, that, that list makes me sound quite impressive. So I've got, I've got some pressure now. I've got to stand up to that, right? Well, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll be honest. I mean, I, I think I mentioned to it you uh, when we when we first spoke. But the um, the idea of of someone being able to decode the basically the human brain when it comes to decision making is is fascinating and slightly scary. So, <laughs> why don't you kind of, I mean, say it in your own words. What 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 does this actually mean? The- the easiest way that I did, that I think that I can describe it is that if you think about your day-to-day life, 
right? If you think about the adverts that, that are presented to you on Facebook, on LinkedIn, on websites that you're on, if you think about the emails that you receive, is it fair to say the vast majority is absolutely dross and not relevant to you? I would say so. Right. And it's annoying, so, isn't it? Right. Very annoying, right? So um, after 20 years of theories, this is where I, I sold the business, sold the property that I had in 2015 to investigate under a problem statement of why don't humans understand humans? And I used digital advertising as my doorway into it because for, and these, these are incredible stats and they're true in 2021 as they were in 2015, the average um, click-through rate on Facebook, so not purchase, but actually just interact with an advert is 1.61%. On Google display, so, you know, like static images and stuff like that, not the search stuff, it's 1.91%. And programmatic, you know, when you look at like, say a t-shirt on a website, but you don't buy it and that t-shirt pops up everywhere else you go, that's what programmatic is. I call it stalker ads, <laughs> which, uh, which might reveal how I feel about programmatic. It gets a 0.35% engagement. If you put them together, that's 98.81% of ads don't get engaged with. It's $265 billion worth of spend. And to throw out the, the biggest number I have, which is 4.832 trillion ads every single year that people don't care about. That's incredible. You know what I mean? That is right? incredible. And, I mean, and that's is, why- Is there something in there as well? I mean, because, I mean, in this industry, we're, we're, we're sort of, um, you know, us, us, you know, people like marketers and, and people that do the, ad side of things for a living and all the rest of it. They, they talk about this being, you know, the paradigm shift because you can track your metrics and you know what's working and all the rest of it. You know, don't go and buy space in, 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 in magazines or billboards because that's just a waste of money and all the rest of it. But I mean, the stats that you've just run through there would indicate that it's not a lot better. Well, that's the irony of it. So I do a lot of work with um, really large, well-known agencies, right? A lot on the strategy and problem-solving side. And they're obviously coming from this, from knowing this industry a lot better than what I do, right? And they're all seasoned and doing it their entire lives. And there is a growing issue with what you just spoke about is performance marketing. That's what it's known as, right? So everybody is putting more energy, more time, and more effort into performance marketing. And that's been true for the past 10 to 15 years. But now you're getting a little bit of a pushback and saying, well, just because we can measure every metric doesn't mean that it works. But that is one of the challenges that's coming up more and more. So people are starting to push back about it. At the same time, Facebook's sales strategy is literally going out to their clients and saying, don't worry about clicks, don't worry about purchases. It's all about impressions. Because mm. if you make enough impressions, like somebody sees the advert, they eventually come back to you. Um, and that, my friend, is like a sales strategy when you know your product's got a weakness to it, but you try and play on the fact about who you are. It's, it's what I would call a very Microsoft behavior being done by Facebook. Yeah, I mean, that that sounds like the 1960s. Right. If anyone listening has, has watched uh, you know, Mad Men, for example, the heyday of um, you know that side of things, and it was always the same thing. But that's how it started when it came to you know advertising and, and when it became sexy and, and all the rest of it. And there was never that whole thing of, right, it's not about the result. It's about getting out there. It's getting in front of people. It's, it takes X number of touches for somebody to recall you and all the rest of it. And that was easy to sell in a way because it sounds logical. Right. Yet at the same time, it meant that who the people that were actually selling the advertising meant that they weren't necessarily um, beholden to the results of the client. And, and, you know, they were able to spin things in a, in a way only advertisers can do. And I think that, yeah, it's, it's, um, 
I think we're seeing a, a similar thing today because we see lots of people saying, I mean, I, I have a lot of people that come to me and, and, and say a similar sort of thing. It's like, well, I've, I've done all the, you know, I've tried this, I've had an agency come in, I've, um, you know, tried the online stuff and all the rest of it, but it's just expensive and I'm not getting the results and all the rest of it. And I've helped people with it. I've moved away from it because of part of that, because it is so difficult to, um, I guess, help someone without the actual understanding that at the very beginning, you're going to be spending a lot of money on data. And a lot of people aren't prepared for that. And I'm totally with you. I mean, there's there's a number of things that you've just spoken about that that I'd like to pick up on, right? First of all, there's 26,000 agencies in the United, in the UK, sorry, 26,000 marketing agencies of, of all different types, right? So it's really hard to pick apart who you should actually work with. The second thing is that um, most of them are really good with the tool, meaning that they can know how to manipulate the, the system of Facebook to your advantage, select the right data, things like that. But for example, when I did the four years of R&D, I spent time with um, uh, over 65 different agencies and I was trying to figure out what they did and what they didn't know under this same problem statement of why don't humans understand humans. And one of the big breakthroughs was I spent time with what is known as one of the UK's top three, and they call themselves the number one programmatic agency in the UK. And we identified, this is early stages when we build in the matrix, but we identified a number of gaps in the creative, in the actual visuals, the experience, the words being used for one of the programmatic clients. And I pointed it out to them and they said, well, we don't care about that. We have a, a partner that we use for creative. So you're talking about programmatic, which is full of all this third party, erroneous, unethical data. They've got access to all of that and they're not using it to actually inform their creative. That was stunning to me. The, the, the data is not actually being used. And I found that time and time again. And it's literally what we presume, particularly as consumers, that brands know about us, I find not to be the case at all. Mm. It's incredible how deep it goes. Yeah. And... I mean, I love the analogy. It's it's kind of like, yeah, you, you can you can have the best tool, but if you don't know how to wield it, it's kind of like, you know, in the in the right person's hand, a hammer can be a, you know, to, to can, can create beautiful art and a sculpture, or it can be a murder weapon. You know, it's right. you know, it, it does. Yeah, you, you have to sort of know where it fits into ultimately what you're looking at doing, and 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 it's kind of like that. If you're trying to create a beautiful piece of art and a, and a sculpture or something like that, but you're kind of missing the point around informing the creative you're not going to create art, you're going to create a mess. Absolutely. Absolutely. So what, what, what have you then done to solve this problem um, with the matrix? Do you want to explain sort of what it is and, and, and how it, it benefits both? Because it does, it benefits at the end of the day, the client that you work with, but also the consumer on the receiving end, because it doesn't necessarily annoy people because it's much more specific, isn't it? Yeah, because the funny thing about the, before I jump into all of it, right, the, yeah. just uh, picking up on, you, you're great at making just little triggers that, that explode <laughs> in my mind about different things, Adam. Um, the, the, the really interesting thing about what I've figured out over the years is one of the things is the brain mechanics of loyalty, right? Not loyalty as a disconnect, but the actual feeling and how it works within the brain. And very, it's very much like um, desire and lots of other feelings that we've got. It's kind of a scale. So the brain judges, how does, how do you feel about this particular thing or brand or product at any given time? Right? So it's a scale of loyalty and the, to, to pick up on your point, it's amazing how many brands are actually killing loyalty by bothering people with either too much stuff or just the wrong stuff. Mm. It's incredible. How do I know that? Right? So. 
bear in mind that 98.81% of those digital ads that I mentioned are ignored, right? Conversely, if we start moving into the science and the brain side, 98% of all decisions that all of us make every single day are unconscious, mm. right? So we're never conscious of that decision. And we humans make 35,000 decisions every single day on average, mm. right? So there's a direct correlation between only 2% of your thoughts are conscious, right? And just slightly less than 2% of ads get engaged with, right? Mm. So the, the big thing for me was like context and relevance, Right? That's the big anchor of everything that I've built is how can I understand your personal context to serve you more relevance? So, for example, if I find out that a person in our database um, absolutely loved us, but wasn't going to buy for us for another five months, or another person was behaving like they were absolutely in love with us, but could never buy from us because there's a price issue or things like that. It's all those little types of context. So what I did under this, this statement of why don't humans understand humans, I had one giant idea, which was irrational mathematics. And that's the core behind everything. And the idea of irrational mathematics was this, this idea that human behavior is irrational, which we hear all the time, right? And certainly talk about a lot in the science world, is that that's only true when you're judging me. Mm. And you're only irrational when I'm judging you. To each of us as individuals and everybody else listening to this podcast, the way that we each do things as, as, as an individual is our unique way of doing things, right? And if it's our unique way of doing things, it might be complex, but it meant it was computable. So what I figured out was that decision-making was a game of variables, millions of variables, but it was a game of variables. And if I could assemble all the variables, then I'd be able to understand how to modify um, everything to serve people more relevance, right? Mm. So to do that, I took 24 academic disciplines and boiled them all down to pull out all the relevant things that relate to decision-making, turned it into algebra, because algebra is problem-solving mathematics at its heartbeat. And as an example, because we don't have to jump into all these different um, uh, academic disciplines, but yeah, I was going to say that uh, yeah, I, I wasn't great at algebra, so <laughs> <laughs> but well, maybe I'm, I should have paid more attention. <laughs> I'm good at logic, mm. like I can do the logic of an algorithm, right? This is the interesting thing about math is that I can't sit and do all the complex stuff. I don't know all the, uh, I don't even know what all the symbols and stuff mean, but I can give the logic to the data people, and then they can go and do the magic. They're known in Gap the Matrix as the magicians. So we, we got to find them. They're up on a pedestal, right? Yeah. But, but here's the context about why all those different academic disciplines relating to decision-making is that if you speak to a psychologist, they'll say that the vast majority of human decisions are based on an emotion. If you speak to a neuroscientist, they'll say the vast majority of human decisions are based on a need. And I'd got to the point, I was like, neither can be right and wrong at the same time. And in the same way that in the business world, we get silos between sales, marketing, and service, of course, in the academic world, we get even deeper silos because there's a lot of ego between different academic disciplines. So collaboration is very, very rare. Mm. So that's what I did was assemble all those things together. I built a model of decision-making which human experts can follow. And then I built software that's got over 300 algorithms to then understand literally the needle in the haystack way to serve people. And then on the business side, you know, four years of R&D, two years of taking it to market. And I'm really proud that today we've worked with global brands, top five brands, automotive tech, agencies, fashion, skincare, software as a service and FMCG. It's cool. So give us an example of what this looks like in the real world. Um, take, a, take a client that you've worked with and where they were before, what happened during the process of plugging in the matrix, and then how things are for them afterwards, because I think that will bring this to life for a lot of people. 
yeah, so I'm going to I'm going to throw out some questions to help people listening to this, right, that, that relate to this as well. It's like, do you know how your customers make decisions? I would say most people don't. Right. Do you know why somebody picks you versus the competition? Uh, again, I would say most people don't um, because most people don't ask them. Right. So do you know where else those people shop or what makes them loyal in the first place? I think more people may know where other people shop if they've done a little bit of research, but I don't think it's anywhere near as uh, yeah, complete as it should be. Okay, couple more. Um, what do you think will tempt your customers to engage with you, to purchase from you, to come back to you? Again, I think people will have an assumption rather than an actual answer. Right. And the assumption stuff's really interesting, right? Because we make 35,000 decisions a day. And the number one thing that technology has done for us, very much like performance marketing, has accelerated our perception that we don't have enough time, we can't slow down, and we can't think. And I have an open an open um, hypothesis that a lot of it is driven by the fact that if you think about the pre-digital age, we might have had a watch on our wrist, but we didn't actually check it that often, mm. right? And we had a diary. Whereas now, looking at my laptop as I am, in the top right is the is the clock. And I might not be always conscious that I'm looking at that clock, but I am very time aware, mm. right? So technology has accelerated our perception of time because every human has a relationship with time, like we have a relationship with everything. Mm. So I think that's the challenge behind it. Um, final question, what are the factors that make customers decide in your favor? Again, I think that people would have a, a, an assumption and it's probably based on you know, the obvious things like pricing and, and whatnot. But again, most people don't really know. Yeah, and I think I think price and discounts is one of the things that kills B two B sales left, right, mm, and center. Hundred percent. Because because we don't we don't have anything else to anchor it on. So humans, um, particularly men, go very quickly to what we call end game thinking. Yeah. They're trying to find the quickest route to say, well, it's about price, it's about discount. Because like performance marketing, it's a metric we can hold, and it's something we can measure against. Um, going back to your question, is that. Uh, if I take an automotive example, so let's give context to the outcome for this before we look at actually what happened is that we had a um, launch in a car in the United States in April when COVID is still going on. It's known as the soccer mom car. It's got a negative perception both by females and males. So it's like a very safe car. We had no discounts, no incentives. And we had to slow down the launch after we did it because demand outstripped supply. Right. And we've got a lot of these outlier results, which is not really me showing off. It's actually me saying, just pause while I go through the context of this and think about those questions we just went over. Mm -hmm. What we do is we run the matrix, which is super agile, meaning that we never have a one size fits all approach. So every car is different, every automotive brand is different, whoever we're working with. And what it does is it, it hoovers up what are the gaps and opportunities between what the experience is today, what the perception is. And what's the psychological reasons why somebody engages and buys? Mm. So, for example, when it comes to a car, one of the things that comes up a lot is that the car is second only to our bedroom in terms of it being a psychological layer, meaning that you might share your bed with another, you might share your car with another or with your family, but it's still very much your own private space. It's still the place where you get to sing when you're driving along in your, on your own and stuff like that, right? Mm. So there's a lot of associations that go with it. And the automotive industry is very much caught in a model of car metal engine, car metal engine price, car metal engine discount, car metal engine TV ad. And if you think about cars, right, they do these big ticket TV ads showing the shiny car, but what happens after? When was the last time you got a really good CRM about the car? 
or something that was relevant to you or something that excited you. The, the automotive industry is very much caught in that end game thinking. If we get people onto the lot, we can do it. And one of the challenges they've got is that it's, it's very much run like a channel sales operation. Like most car lots are, are an individual showroom. So even though they market as the brand, they're really serving individual decision makers, which are the people that run the car lots, right? Because that's their own business. So that's how it's filtered out. Yeah. So we took all of all of that stuff as we do with every client, and then we boil it down to understand what are the actual segments that we're dealing with. And that tends to not be mega, mega complex as what people think, right? We, we look at the relevant side of data. So for this car launch, we actually had four individual segments. And then from that, we can figure out, this is the visual to use, this is the media, this is the media flow, this is when to contact people, this is how often, and these are the things that are going to interest them that are the features, functions, and emotional gains of the car. And there's very little about a car driving around the corner. <laughs> um, and that's really yeah. what it comes down to, is what's relevant to the audience, you know? Well, I mean, that's that's a massively key thing, and, and you know, it's it's totally, totally, you know, at the centre of my philosophy, I mean, you know, think like the fish, the name of my business is it's all about understand your customer. And if I have to say again, it's understand your customer, understand your customer, understand your customer. And, and what I love about this approach is that it's the first time I've seen anyone talk about an advertising solution or strategy that actually puts the customer at the center of it, rather than it being about the business, about the car, because it's not about the car. It's not about the business. It's about the customer it's about the client it's about the person on the other end and i think that we get lost in likes clicks blah 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 and forget that there's a human being on the end of it right. and that's what i like about this whole thing of um you know understanding the decision making process and it's not to be manipulative but it's to enable somebody to sort of go on a journey that they want to go on rather than it just being just jammed down their throat yeah you got it and the, the journey part's key because um, you can't manipulate people to buy something. You can't manipulate people to do something they don't want to do, particularly not when it's a big ticket, like a, like a car or like a 500 pound blazer and all these different things that we've worked on. It's slightly different when it comes to FMCG, because that's when you're into, and this is quite interesting. We humans, the 35,000 decisions that we make, right? The, the vast majority of our decision-making is based on an, an emotion because the emotions connect into the reward center in our brain. And the reward center is a chemical release. So the reason why FMCG, like you can see an amazing cream egg advert, right? If you like cream eggs, you're going to buy a cream egg mm. because you're going to reward yourself multiple times every single day. Holding a door open for somebody is a minor reward, mm. right? All the way through to having sex is a much larger reward to all these different things that then connect into your impulse shopping. So impulse shopping is something that we figured out. So if you think about your week in general, right? My impulse shopping generally kicks in on a Thursday evening. If I've had a good or a bad week, I'm going to reward myself, right? So I'm going to either get a T-shirt or a Korean takeaway. That's my kind of model, right? <laughs> wow, and, and hopefully you don't spill the takeaway on the T-shirt. <laughs> yeah, right? And the, the really interesting thing about that, when you think about impulse shopping, is that your competition when it comes to impulse is very different from normal shopping. Because your competition is not T-shirt brand A and B. It's actually, I want a reward. And if that's mm. going to be food, then put food in front of me. If it's going to be a t-shirt, I'm very much driven by whatever it is in front of me, mm. what triggers the type of reward that I'm going to take. But the key thing is I'm going to get a reward no matter. Mm. So there's different types of competition depending on what you're doing as well. Yeah, absolutely. I, I often say that, that a lot of the time your competition isn't necessarily who you think it is. It's, it's generally cat videos, pornography, or apathy. Um, <laughs> because, you know, especially online, because... 
we are distracted by absolutely everything, you know, from other advertisers to, you know, what our friends are posting to, you know, the, uh, the impulse of, um, you know, our human biological needs and, and just the want to not to do anything and, and stay in a comfort zone. And I think that if you don't understand that at the basic level, then, and, and you think that the only thing that you are actually competing against is other people that sell your stuff or the same sort of thing. And, um, you know, there is so many options. And I think that if you really thought about it, it'll blow your mind. As you say, 36,000 decisions or 38,000 that you make every single day. We even hearing that you kind of go, right. How, how does that work? How do we do that? In you know, it, it happens without thinking. And, I think that just an, uh, not everyone's going to have the matrix. Not everyone's going to have the ability to go as deep as this. But as I as I sort of come back to a lot of the time, if you take something from this conversation and, and what we're talking about here, it's know your customer and maybe go back and listen to some of the questions that Martin just asked and say, can I answer these for myself? And if I can't, how do I go about finding those answers? And a lot of the time, it's it's looking at your data, it's talking to your customer, it's finding out the kind of things that they do. It's, it's you know, and, and not just doing a simple survey that a lot of people fall back on. Have conversations with people, actually talk to them, find out what it's like to, you know, spend a day in their shoes because that will give you so much of this sort of fundamental, um, I guess, foundation that will inform a lot of the things that you will create moving forward, whether you're going to go down the route of an advertising solution or, or, or whatever, but it's the marketing, it's it's how you speak to your customers, it's how you present yourself, it's how you train your staff, it's everything fundamental. Like, it is so key, it's 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 ridiculous. Yeah, I, could, I mean, I, I couldn't agree more. And um, just picking up on what you said about surveys, right? Mm. Surveys are one of the biggest things that kill business growth. So we do it because it's quick and easy, right? But when we do multiple choice stuff, the radio button options, you're not getting the truth of things. So we did we did one for a fashion business, and I can't I can't name them because of what this example is, but they had a perception that they were in the kind of luxury slash premium space, right at the very top of the fashion echelon, right? And we did a survey, but what we added was open text questions, meaning that people can write whatever they want, right? Because that's how you actually find out the truth. And if you give people that type of permission to express themselves, it's amazing what you get back. Mm. What we got back was, was brands that were in the, the high street slash fast fashion slash premium level. So literally how they were perceived as a brand was exposed from one question as a survey. So they were, they were literally, because they had this perception of themselves, how they were showing themselves, how they were advertising, how they were marketing themselves, how they were selling themselves, their shop windows, everything was misaligned to how the customers actually saw them. Because if you imagine, if you're seeing more of like an Adidas, a Nike, uh, Boss Orange, this going back when Boss Orange still existed, versus a Gucci and a Louis Vuitton, right? You've got a very different mindset of what you're dealing with. Totally. And and that, you know, that, that can be the difference between you know, success and failure. A lot of the time it's like, if you're pushing one thing and then charging a price and the, you know, the customer doesn't perceive the value in it, then, you know, it's going to be very difficult to actually show someone why you are the, the, the right choice for whatever it is that you do. And I think that, I mean, it's interesting. Um, a couple of things you've said have brought out of a recent, um, interview I did with, um, Colin Shaw and, um, you know, he talks about that uh, often, um, what a customer says and what they does is often very different. 
Um, and he also brought up a very interesting point around um, how important memory is when it comes to things like loyalty and, and decision making. And, and I think what you've touched on there, it, it triggered it in my head, which was the memory of doing bad marketing. Yeah. is part of your customer experience. It's, car- it's part of that journey. So even if somebody at some point and you've been stalking them and they are then in that position to buy something, it's sometimes so counterintuitive or, or counterproductive because they'd have been annoyed by things that you have been putting in front of them, but they're ready to buy. But they'll, actually what you've done is just fuel your competitors Yeah, in a way. Yeah, it comes from the this 98% of all of our decisions being unconscious, right? I describe it as a database of life because it's literally, there's this little bit of kind of um, nature, what you're born with, obviously, that's your chemical, biological predisposition is the way that I describe it, right? Um, but the rest is what you experience in life. And without, without breaking brains too much about it, because it took me a long time to get my head around it as well, is that a lot of our decision-making, a lot of our experiences come in unconsciously and then leave unconsciously. So we've got a bunch of stuff within our system, right? That, that from when we were seven years old, 14 years old, which is when most of your habits, behaviors, and decision-making locks down, right? That is affecting our decision-making right now. And picking up your point, right? Is that something that annoys us for whatever reason, we're in, we're in, a, we're in a bad mood, we love this brand, or my favorite one was, um, used to be a huge fan of Armani. And I had a hissy fit on the 23rd of December, literally, <laughs> I had a little tantrum where I'm standing in Costco and they've got a, they've got a, a, a formica table, is that the correct word? A plastic crappy looking table in the middle of Costco, right? With Armani jeans stacked to the rafters. Right. And they were like 25 quid. And I was like, this is, I remember I was slamming them up and down saying to my wife, this is what I'm talking about. This is how brands kill themselves. And yeah. and that's what I came up with the phrase is like, just because you can, doesn't mean that you should. And now when our money pops up, right. I don't think about looking cool. Like I used to I don't think, can I be cool? Mm. I think about Costco. <laughs> I think about Costco and that bloody table. And yeah, it's, right. it's true. And there's so many things that, that uh, I mean, the, the, uh, a book to read on this subject is is um, pre-influence uh, Robert Cialdini uh, or pre-influence or whatever he's, he's done it. He uses a great example in that book about selling mattresses and how putting images of clouds on a website. I think it was mattresses. Putting clouds on a website, in, uh, images of, of clouds, improved the conversion because of the association with comfort and lightness and, and all of that kind of thing. And, and you would have no idea that that is the kind of thing that would influence your decision-making. And that that's the 98%, that database just gets a little tick about the cloud, mm. right? So it knows it can progress and it can look forward and, and it's starting to move up the scale of positive mm. influence, right? Mm. So we may act. So if you get a number, a number of those factors and variables right, you just stack things in your favour. Mm. And, that, and that, that's just how it works, you know? And it, and it comes down to, I mean... <sighs> You know, we, we, we sort of uh, you know, think about things and, and B2B and it's like, okay, well, I don't sell mattresses, so I'm not going to put clouds on my, my website and all the rest of it. But it's, it's kind of like thinking and, and taking that idea and thinking, right, what is, the, what is the emotion that you're looking to create? Because that is what imagery does. That's what great design does. It elicits an emotion and a subconscious emotion. And it's kind of like, how do I show that in a way that elicits that emotion but it's not so blooming necessarily obvious and, and to the point it becomes tacky because it can go too far the other way. 
Yeah, I think I think um, it's a great challenge. First of all, the, one of the biggest things that I've found in in B two B and in the SaaS space, and and my previous businesses were all in the B two B space, right? Um, is that too often we're doing that end game thinking pops up a lot, right? Where what we're trying to do is communicate to the business that we're trying to sell to, right? And we forget about the buyer. And the buyer is the one that's rejecting you, that not because of price, not because of discounts, but for a, a variety of different reasons. In the SaaS space, the place that I always go to is how can you make the buyer's life easier? Mm. How can you show that you're making the buyer's life easier? Things like automated reporting, things like being able to demonstrate the impact about whatever it is that you're selling. Just things that literally we humans are followers by nature and we're lazy by nature. Mm. And I call it the efficiency tricks. So anything that you can make their life be, be better and less effort to get it, you're going to win. Mm. But if you, if you go on any business website, they're, they're using generally using really dry, non-emotive language, and they're trying to talk to this ethereal, every can, can what I call the gray face of humanity, right? It's not a customer. It's the fact that we could serve everybody. So therefore, we're going to use really average, grounded language about everything. Mm. And, and B2B's tried it a lot. You know, we've seen a lot of these websites where we're here for, and they do the industry type stuff. But I feel over the past 10 years, that's even been killed in terms of what the upside of what that was supposed to be. It's just become like quite vanilla where you just mm. drop in the different industries. You know what I mean? Yeah. And and a lot of it, you know, it, it will be experimentation. It will be, um, you know, a lot of it, will, again, will come from your, your, your clients, your customers, that kind of thing. But ultimately, some of it will have to come through a bit of trial and error and experimentation and all that sort of stuff. And, and also a bit of courage, a bit of risk taking to be different. Because, right. as you say, so much B2B business is vanilla. Um, and it's like, what do you do that is a little bit different? Um, you know, I, I, just a pure personal example. And it did come by sort of accident, but a lot of, you know, nobody would really necessarily think of, you know, think like a fish is a name for a, uh, you know, a, a business. But it, it instantly has something that invokes curiosity. And then there's a story behind it. And, it did come a bit by accident. It was a hobby blog at the beginning and then I started off on my own and then it just sort of stuck because it's the metaphor that I'd use to explain the complex, you know, the complexity that can exist and does exist around marketing and, and, and it just sort of stuck. But it's something that people remember. Like there's always, you know, it's, it's not something that you forget. It's like, what? I had somebody so you know, she goes, so what do you do? You know, what's, what's your business? And I said, oh, you know, think like a fish. And he said, what? You've got short attention span. You know, it's kind of like, well, yes, I do. You know, that's the ADHD, but it's not the reason why. And and it's sort of thinking about those sorts of examples and thinking, what can I do that is maybe a little bit different to the industry norm? Um, and how can I apply that to the way my customer thinks? Like, because, you know, my example there is about story. It's about a metaphor. So that's how it will then relate into it. So I, I think there's, there's, there's so much here. I mean, it's just such a huge topic, right? We're not going to do it justice, but I just want to help people sort of come away from this and, and think about some of the questions you can ask yourself when it comes to, do you really know your customer? Do you really know your client? Do you really know the things that drive some of their decision-making? And if you don't, again, as I say, sort of go back to, uh, to thinking about it. But um, I mean, you mentioned as well that you've, you've sort of not, this isn't your, your first uh, rodeo, as it were. And you've done a few other things as well and started a few other businesses. Um, would you say that there is a, uh, you know, when, uh, from a, a B2B perspective, 
one of your favorite sort of business building um, growth strategies, tactics, either that you're using now or that you've used in the path past that you would, um, yeah, that you would sort of um, share with people to maybe think about using for themselves? It's a great question. Um, from from the B2B perspective, just picking up on your, your final point because it, it, it relates to this, right, is that when was the last time you actually had a look at your website in general? Or you could just say when was the last time you had a look at your website? I often find that B2B people just aren't, aren't doing that, right? When was the last time you had a look at your website? When was the last time that you actually just paused, took a breath, and looked at your sales deck as though you were having it presented to you? and then looked at all the connected dots that go with it. And then the question that I would put alongside that is, is that who you want to be communicated to? Is that who you want to be spoken to? And I'll, I'll find that, that most people um, are really surprised with that type of stuff, you know? Mm. I, I often call it like, you know, does your marketing pass the grandma test? Right. And when I, you okay. know, when I talk about grandma, it's, it's kind of like, you know, would you feel comfortable presenting your marketing, your sales messages and all the rest of it, your product, would you be comfortable showing that to your grandmother? And then would you be comfortable that your grandmother would part with her money to buy it? Yeah, absolutely. Because and then, I think a lot of the time we don't necessarily think of it in that, in that way. Yeah, no, I'm totally with you. And then picking up on the rest of your challenge is um, let's move into some positive psychology and kind of values type behavior, right? Because these are really good techniques. And, and the thing that I'm always working on um, is how can you create an environment where there is no perceived hierarchy? And I don't mean leadership, right? I just mean the fact that just because I am a junior personnel, right, doesn't mean that I can't challenge and ask the CEO a question. And this is one of the biggest problems, and it's more prevalent in B2B than, than anywhere else alongside banking and weirdly fashion. Mm. In terms of all the industries I've worked in, these are, these are more of the top-down hierarchical, do-what-I-say type things, right? Um, so the first one for me is like a nice balance of speed of response, quality of response. I find that human selfishness often holds back a lot of growth, right? So what we're saying with this one is that, and it works just as well for breaking down barriers between sales and marketing, speed of response. So we finished the meeting, we're going to get back to them. If the meeting was in the morning, we'll get back to them in the afternoon. If the meeting was in the afternoon, we'll get back to them in the morning, right? And quality so that we don't just sacrifice doing things quickly, but we pause to think about what we're actually putting into the system. And that's where I found a lot of success, particularly in the SaaS, telecommunications, video conferencing type worlds, because the quality part is often what's missing. Mm. So these are, these are just a great way to just balance two positive things, but it's really easy for people to understand, right? So now you can put that up on the wall or do whatever you want with it and say, right, speed response, quality of response. And you're giving all of your staff permission to say, how does that relate to quality of response? I understand speed, but what about the quality part? Because that's the values that we stand by. And you put that kind of stuff together and that's how you can raise employee behavior. It's not, it's not just about a junior person challenging the CEO. I'm just giving an example about how I believe values should be in a business. Hmm. Anytime that you've got five values in a paragraph is just nonsense. Mm. Um, partly because it's there for PR and partly because the brain can only chunk four key pieces of information at a time. So unless they're really short statements and there's four of them, they're not values. They're just a right. perception. I'm thinking I'm going to create something similar for the family. Um, when, <laughs> when, 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 when my kids are that, that, that sort of age, because it just makes sense. It's kind of like, well, it's not hierarchical. It's, um, you know, it, it's about sort of, you know, living a shared value and, it, you know, and that sort of shared behavior will elicit some form of response and then an outcome. And, and it, it reminds me of um, um, 
the how the SAS are run. So the way that they do things. It's very different for the army and the SAS. They are all on a you know, they do not go on mission until everyone is in agreement and everyone has had the opportunity to challenge the mission. Um, I, I, I knew a guy who was a ex-SAS and he did leadership training and all the rest of it and uses this model. And it's fascinating when you actually listen to some of the missions and the things that they were doing, but the way that they, um, they do things beforehand, it's very, very interesting. It's very similar in that, in that sort of line of thinking. And well, you know, they are depending on where you're listening to, you know, you can consider them the elite special forces in the world, but, um, yeah, it's a, it's a model that works. And one of the reasons that it works on a, on a neuroscience level is that what you're basically doing, we humans are very pattern, pattern operating creatures, right? Like I think 98% of our decisions are not conscious, right? We're, we're craving efficiency. That's literally how the brain operates. So by putting in action oriented values, speed of response, quality of response is same with the SES stuff, right? Is what you're asking people that are dealing with that to actually process is their pattern of behavior that goes with it. So you're actually enforcing positive behavior and the brain's automatically running through mm. how would this system work? How can I improve it? What am I going to do with it? This is a rule, an action-orientated rule to follow. And that's for me is like we did, um, when we finished the matrix and we had our 36 case studies and stuff, because a lot of it is about decision-making, we did have a choice about, and I'm just giving validity to, to what we're speaking about. We did have a choice about, do we do like a McKinsey and become like a culture business? Because we can do that kind of enforcement. And we decided because of, McKinsey and and how the market was set and what what myself and business partners did and didn't want to do to avoid that. However, we do a lot of um, really behind the scenes culture change on the positive level. Mm. So that's why this mechanism really matters. Is that even we've we've been speaking about decision making, but the cultural optimization and performance optimization is actually incredibly simple to do if you understand the complexity. But that's the joy of it, you know. Yeah, that's that's fascinating because. We don't need to become neuroscience to understand this. We just have to sometimes rely on a little bit of our intuition, but also common sense um, sometimes. I think that it's, uh, yeah, um, not always as common as we may well think, but then it's common to us and it's not so common to other people. And that's the the, uh, uh, the fascinating um, nature of us human beings is that we're all different. We see the world differently. And and, and that's what I think, you know, having this sort of matrix system, it's going to, it's going to sort of bring people back to being treated as individuals, I think. And that's what I love about it because I think there is too much of a, a blanket and you've covered a number of things, you know, it's kind of like the, um, you know, the apathy, apathy side of things. It's the, you know, we want the fastest route and the easiest route to anything. And I think that that has crept into the way that a lot of people market, a lot of people sell, a lot of people think about things because it's like, well, the trend says it's this, so I'm just going to do that. And everyone else is telling me to do this. So I'm just going to, you know, save my brain from working and just kind of go with it because complexity, confusion, all that kind of stuff, it, it does, it burns more calories in the brain yeah. and the brain is there to protect you and your system. So if it's burning more calories and it's thinking, right, okay, if we burn too much of this, then, you know, it, it you know, this, this, this body is in, uh, you know, in danger of, of survival, then, that's what it does. And, and just sort of understanding that from that, that neurological perspective is, and you know, it, you don't have to know that it ins and outs of the science. You just have to understand how that can impact what you're trying to achieve as a business with your client. Totally. So, um, I think that's a good chance to, um, to slightly shift gears and have a little look at today's, um, virtual hot seat question. 
Hey, it's Adam. Now, just a quick one before we dive into today's virtual hot seat, because as the core philosophy behind the show is a rising tide lifts all ships, I'd love to invite you to come and hang out with me, my guests and other business owners and directors of established businesses with a track record of providing good, solid service and a positive reputation in their market inside the B2B Growth Think Tank community, where we all connect, solve problems and help each other grow more profitable businesses. It's free to join, so come along, join us at thinklikeafish.co.uk forward slash think tank group. I look forward to welcoming you, but first, let's get to today's virtual hot seat. I've managed to find one that I think is going to be on topic, and it is basically, if, if, you, are, if you are new to the show and this is your first time, this is, this is basically where we take a listener question or challenge and we try and brainstorm some ideas and potential solutions, but really what we try and do is help this person ask themselves some better questions to reach their own sort of solution and, and make their own decision. Um, and this is just one of 38,000 that they're going to make today. So, uh, you know, we'll try and help them out. So today's virtual hot seat question is, uh, we've decided to start running some paid advertising, probably mostly on Facebook to start with, but it's pretty overwhelming trying to figure it all out. And it's just as overwhelming knowing who's actually good at doing this. And I don't know if I should have a staff member learn this and pay for their training or pay an agency. What would you advise? Now, I'm, I'm going to guess you've got an opinion on this. Yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to break this down, actually. Let's, let's just do it as a kind of problem-solving exercise, mm. if that's cool. With you. Absolutely. Right, so my first, my first, I've got two anchors at the start and end of this, right? So the first thing to bear in mind is just because you can doesn't mean you should. Right. And I've seen, I've seen, um, I don't know the size of the business that we're dealing mm. with, but I've seen a lot of SMEs literally just follow what they perceive everybody else does. And then you end up in a scenario that you mentioned earlier where the agency looked like they'd be good on paper, but they couldn't do it. And then they blame the creative and they blame the data and things like that as well. Right. So my first question would be, which channel should you be working on? Right. Mm. And we'll come back to Facebook, but are you just going after Facebook because it's perception? because you use Facebook a lot, because somebody else said that they used Facebook. But that would be my first thing is why Facebook? Yeah. Um, and if we look at that in, in a broader perspective, is that the number one golden thing that you can do, particularly B2B, is to harvest emails that have been obviously given to you GDPR-wise, right? Mm -hmm. And there are a number of tools that allow you to do that. The joy of an email is that once you've got it, as long as you're communicating relevance and you understand context is that you can move people along the funnel and communicate with them forevermore. Mm. Right. So why would you spend money on Facebook ads when email is still, still very, very, very powerful to do Absolutely. that. Right. I think that, you know, to, to sort of, um, you know, build on that is like often this is the first, uh, the, the first question I, I sort of go back and ask people is like, as you say, why Facebook, why paid ads? Is right. this, part of your strategy and therefore you're asking this question because you've done that work on the strategy you have done all the identification of where your client is um you know where they where they congregate how they respond all that kind of stuff or as you've said is this because somebody has said you need to do this or you have been victim of one of those uh you know um shouty experts on facebook that tells that they're basically telling you the only way to grow your business is by using facebook ads yeah, absolutely. So let's, but let's, let's assume that, that Facebook 
or digital ads is the solution they want to go down, right? So, yes, so then what we're going to do is look at the quality of what goes into it. So here's some here's some key things for to to think about and for us to discuss, right? So I mentioned that we've got um, 300 plus algorithms in the software, right? And we've got a model of decision-making. That decision-making model has 296 components about every complex science, psychology, blah, 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 you can imagine. However, number one in that model is still the go-to thing for me for pretty much everything I do. And it's one question, what problem do you solve? Mm. Right? And really simple, if you're a clothing brand, you don't just keep people warm, right? It's like, where do you sit in the echelon of that? If you're a food business, it's not just keeping bellies full, right? If you're a software business, it's not just about the fact that you've got a timekeeping HR software, right? Mm. It's like, literally, what problem do you solve for people? Cool. A lot of people don't really ask themselves that question. And it's right. very, and it's the surface level um, question. It's, it's kind of like, I keep people warm. I put food in their belly or, you know, if you... If you go out on a night out in Newcastle, you'll realise that not all clothes keep you warm and uh, <laughs> spend a bit of time, um, yeah, watching um, watching TV and stuff and you'll realise that uh, food doesn't necessarily just fill your belly. It, uh, yeah, it causes obesity. So it, it's kind of like, yeah, why are you doing that? Like, what is it? Right. And from knowing what problem you solve, then look at that list that you've just created about that question. And you've got to look at it based on um, how well known are you? right? Because how well known you are denotes trust, right? So in, unless you're doing like, like we did some stuff with the, there's a business called Pop Sockets, right? Where you can stick stuff on your laptop or on your wall, and then you put your laptop on it, right? So they're a, they're a, dis, a disruptive thing. It's a relatively cost-effective product, blah, 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 right? So that means that you can tempt people and they'll buy it. And it's kind of like your quick buy, QVC, PayPal, check it, right? But for most businesses, <coughs> If you're not well known and people therefore don't trust you and your product doesn't fit in that impulse area, then you're going to have to work incredibly hard and have a big budget. So things are possible, but the amount of impressions that you need to get a reaction, you've got to be conscious of how difficult that's actually going to be. So that's that part about it. Then you've got thing, the before you go on, I, I think just again, something to sort of build on that is it's, I think, you know, the, the platforms like Facebook and all that kind of thing, like they, they favor um, product sales like e-commerce and, and all that kind of thing from an advertising perspective because of it being a lot of the um, sort of impulse buy type thing. It's something that people can go through and then they can show that, you know, there is attribution to the ad and all the rest of it. But from a B2B perspective, as you said, like if your strategy is that you want to use Facebook ads to gather email addresses to then nurture, then maybe it is the the right thing to do, but have you got everything else in place that happens afterwards? Because the attribution on a long complex sale is not necessarily going to go down to your Facebook ads. Right. And that takes us into who for, who are you actually serving? Mm. And this is really important. And you answered the majority of it already, actually, where your mind was going, which was cool, is that the way to think about Facebook and any social platform is what is going on in the brain when somebody uses it. Nobody's thinking about work or wants to think about work when they're on Facebook. On LinkedIn, they want to be more focused on work. They might want a little bit of light relief, but they really don't want to think about friends and family and stuff like that. So the brain is conditioned based on its perception of each platform that it's on, right? So Twitter is either trolling or debate, right? <laughs> Just depend on your mindset or your mood yeah. for the day. 
and and Instagram is visual storytelling. So even even though you can do visual storytelling on Twitter, when was the last time that you did anything like that or enjoyed something like that? You don't. Right? The brain automates where you go for different things. So if you're selling blockchain and you think that your target market is on Facebook, you might be right, but they do not care about understanding blockchain when they're on Facebook. It can actually do the negative thing that you spoke about earlier, right? Is you can push people away because you can make them annoyed, right? And and how often do we actually search for which brand is this? I, I want to know which brand this is so I can complain about it and be annoyed about it. Mm. So you might have had the perfect solution for me, but the context is all mm. right. Yeah, critical. And that takes us into one of the biggest problems that particularly smaller businesses create for themselves and larger businesses. Mid-market tend to not create as many of these issues for reasons I still can't understand, but it's just, you know, it's just what the That's data the tells project, us. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, um, the, the Facebook ad is not the end game. The Facebook ad is exactly what you said. How do I get somebody intrigued to find out more, to come into the next stage of what I'm going to do? And it's for that reason that I challenge a lot of people, particularly in B2B, more than anything else, is that there's a number of tools out there where you can run incentives and positive games and things like that and harvest relevant emails for people in your target audience. If you do that, then you've got them in their funnel and they're moving all the way through it, whereas Facebook tends to be more of a bet about the end game. So you need to make it intriguing, but that's still not necessarily enough for what people want to do. Because if you think about what a Facebook ad is, even if your goal is to get somebody's email to move them through the funnel, is that they've got to watch whatever it is on Facebook, they've got to click it, they've then got to engage what's there, then to give you their email. They're giving you about four steps. Whereas the tools out there that garner email addresses are generally one or two steps. Mm. And the less steps, the better, if that's what your goal is. Yeah. So you can see on a B2B side, my bias, I'm leaning very heavily towards do the email acquisition because that is lifetime value, you know? Absolutely. And and each of those steps is another decision. Like, am I going to continue? Right. And and I think that a lot of people, if there's a, a mistake that I see quite a lot in, in marketing and sales, it, it's it's trying to jump more than the step ahead because that's where you want to go. Whereas actually realizing that a lot of your marketing, it's just to take the next logical play to that action. And that could be as simple as stopping the feed, um, you know, on a, on an email, the subject lines only job is to stop someone from scrolling through their emails and then click it. Yeah. The first so sentence is to hook someone enough to want to read the next sentence. And that's copywriting 101. But I think a lot of the time we, we lose sight of that, that it is a progression. And each time there is a decision to be made by that person on the other end. But a lot of the time we're sort of thinking, right, how can I get them there as fast as possible? And it's, that's all that somebody is thinking about, not understanding that they'll go at their own pace. And if you, if they feel like they're being pushed and it's not relevant to them and all that kind of thing, they'll, they'll back off. And then that's your, you know, that's, that's, that's one of your impressions. It's one of your clicks. It's, it's blah, 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 blah. So it's, it's knowing, again, it comes back to that strategy piece. Like, what is it you're trying to do? Do you understand the journey that your client's on? Do you understand the emotions? Do you understand X, Y, and Z? And I think that you need to understand that whether you do paid ads, whether you do any sort of marketing anyway. So the question, I think the final sort of part of this was about, do I train someone in-house? Do I sort of take someone outside and all the rest of it? Well, I mean, I I can't answer that because I don't know what they've got in, in, in-house in and, and what the skill set and all that kind of stuff is. But I would say before you can answer the questions that we've just sort of posed, I wouldn't do any of it right now. 
I would be asking myself the question, do I know this fundament? Do these fundamentals? And only then can you sort of think, right, how am I, am I going to be easily able to communicate this to an agency with a necessarily, with a necessary skill set and look for an agency that doesn't just use a tool, i.e. Facebook business manager, but understands how to integrate a, your strategy, maybe optimize it, help out, et cetera, et cetera. That's when you can, you know, if you can find an agency like that, I don't know. But then if you don't know Facebook yourself and you've got to train, you know, it's like you've got to do the same thing. Like, who do you trust to train? And are you just wanting someone to, uh, to push buttons or are you wanting someone to actually grow your business? Yeah, I mean, it's great points. The, the, the main thing for me is that just backing up uh, what you said really is that find out about your customer and what you find out about them will dictate where you go. It will give you the answers to it. What you don't want to do is to fall into a trap of thinking that this is a one-size-fits-all solution and only do things on one channel. Um, and my final thing, just to just to add to the end of it, is another rule, and I call it the Dr. Pepper rule, because they used to have a tagline of what's the worst that can happen, right? And that's where you need to break yourself, because the thing that you spoke about is massively what kills business opportunity. That email subject line, the biggest issue that we come across time and time again, bear in mind that our results are 70 to 120% above the industry for all those types of metrics, including open rates, is that the practical mind kills opportunity. So when sitting down to write, the practical mind says, what are we actually speaking about? So it says the practical thing, and there's no intrigue to that. And that's what kills things. And it's a very, very common human thing to do. Um, so again, it comes down to the fact that are we pausing to think? Sounds mm. so counterintuitive, right? But most of the time, we're not actually consciously thinking. If we're not consciously thinking, then we're doing things based on our own bias and selfishness. And I think that a lot of it comes down to just Again, it's kind of full circle. Some of the stuff you covered at the beginning, which is, you know, we feel like we don't have the time to do it. We don't have the time to to actually sit and think. And we've got that clock in our uh, in our, in our um, you know, in front of us every single day, and it's subconscious, and we feel like we're speeding up and all the rest of it. So, actually taking a bit of time and considering this, because you know, you could argue, oh, it's a it's it's a decision. Maybe we'll give it a go and see what happens. Like maybe that isn't an obvious thing to try. It's like, okay, well, if you want to set aside a budget, you know, set it aside, give it a go. Like who am I to say that that's the wrong thing to do? If you're willing to do that and you may or may get lucky, but is it repeatable? Like that's the big question because unless the fundamentals are in place, it's probably not. And you might get lucky because a broken clock can be wrong or right twice a day, right? So um, I think that there's an awful lot in there to get. And it's not, it's not a, a, I think, a lot of people dive into these kind of things, as you said, too quickly. And they just go, oh, this is what everyone else is doing, so I'm going to do it. So I think the big takeaway that I would like some, the, the person to um, have from this is take a back step and just go for a walk and think about it. Like, where are you? Is it right for you? Et cetera, et cetera. Is your decision based on what you see is required or is it based on what other people are telling you to do? So um, I think it's about Thank you very much, Martin. That was um, that was a, a great hot seat, I think. And uh, I like the way that you've, uh, I mean, you can see the logic in the way that you think. And that's why I love doing these because different people have different approaches and, and the fact that you approach this as a problem solving exercise, is fantastic. So um, thank you very much. Um, with all the stuff that you've been doing and what you've got going on, what's, what's kind of the biggest challenge facing you? That's a great question. The, the biggest challenge is that 
we're not coming from, we don't sit in a box and we don't sit in an existing silo, right? So the results are there, the impact's there, but you're not an agency and you're not necessarily this sales or this marketing and stuff like that. So our, our challenge is like the reputation growth stuff. It's very much um, growing the, the PR and things like that as well. Once you get people in the system, our close rate's really, really high. You know, these are these are wonderful sales challenges to have. We've got we've got a nice nice pipeline, lots of nice projects at the moment. So for me, it's um, it's just I'm quite just enjoying the experience to see what happens next. I've learned enough from the previous business that I had positive and negatively that I'm, I'm quite chilled about just seeing what happens. And my rule is don't work with dicks. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I live by that rule and I love that rule as well. So, um, I mean, what's interesting is, uh, and what's refreshing is that there is that ultimately behind everything is a sense of curiosity that I, yeah. I can see that you have. And it's it's not just a curiosity from an adventure because I think a lot of the time that we, we, we kind of do this and we, we start our own stuff and we're, you know, we're in business and it's you know serious and blah, blah, blah. You've got to have fun. You've got to play. You've got to be curious. And you've got to experiment and you've got to kind of make mistakes. You've got to fall down. You've got to get back up and all the rest of it. And I think that that sometimes is, is something that we all miss. And, uh, you know, just be curious. Try things yeah, out. And, and all the rest brilliant. of it. So, Martin, this has been a fascinating conversation. And, you know, one that I could go off in a million different directions. You know, I'm a psychological armchair geek um i i, I guess um but uh, you know to talk to someone that has literally gone to the depths that you have and, and decoded it it's it, it's been a pleasure and i know that everybody uh, listening is, is going to really have sort of got an awful lot of this and it's probably like me got the word you know the cogs whirring a, a little bit so um in terms of the kind of um people that you work with or um maybe would look to collaborate with like what's an ideal client for you or what's somebody that you could potentially, um, you know, collaborate with in a, in a way that sort of could be beneficial? Yeah. So I'm, I'm always interested in doing any kind of uh, collaborations that further advances what we do or connects in with what we do. So we've got a number of agency partners on the B2B and B2C side. So we give them USPs, help them win more business. It's a very kind of risk reward type setup. So real partnerships and stuff. Um, uh, beyond that, our, our profile for clients, apart from the agency stuff, is um, tends to be more on the consumer side and more on the enterprise. And we built the models to be d- deliberately agile, so it can be really expensive, long projects or or really quick, just kind of problem solving things. Mm. And then on the B two B side, we do some B two B stuff, but we're a little bit selective with it. But it tends to be more on the on the SaaS side, just by the nature of what my background and my business partner's background is. Cool. And um, if, if people wanted to um, get in touch because that sounds either like them or they, they might know someone to, to, to help, um, where's the best place to connect and carry on the conversation? They just need to target me with a Facebook ad. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, just, uh, just LinkedIn. Martin Lucas on LinkedIn is, is perfectly fine. Or they can email me, martin at gapinthematrix.com. I'm pretty chilled about either. Awesome. And I'll put those links in the show notes. And obviously gapinthematrix.com is the website that you can go and check out if um, if you are so inclined. So um, Martin, as I say, this has been fascinating. Thoroughly enjoy the conversation and um, just thank you very much for joining me and have an awesome rest of your day. Thanks for having me on, Adam. It was awesome. Cheers. So that's it for this episode. I hope you found it valuable. I hope you got some great ideas that you can take away and apply to your business to help you grow. If you did, 
please share it with somebody else that might also find this valuable because they will thank you for it. Also, to let you know that I have a podcast gift page where I put a lot of resources that I love to share with my listeners. You can find the links to join the Facebook community there and you can get my book, The Conversational Relationship Marketing and the audiobook version all for free, plus a number of other resources I'll be adding over time on that page. So make sure you head there to thinklikeafish.co.uk forward slash podcast gift and you can help yourself to the things that make most sense to you. And if you have enjoyed the show, please make sure you're subscribed. You'll get updated as the new episodes come out. And finally, last favor, please consider giving the show your honest rating and review on Apple Podcasts. I read every single one. They mean the world for me. I love hearing from my listeners and it does help others find the show as well. So if you want to go and do that, I'd really appreciate it. But until next time, have an awesome day and we'll speak soon.